So yeah, the louder, the better. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so, um, Becky is who mm -hmm. I'm interviewing today, everybody, um, on postpartum depression and just all the things of new motherhood. Um, but first I want to give them a chance to get to know you a little bit. So if Great. you want to introduce yourself and just share a little bit about what your experience has been so far in the parts of your story that you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. Um, my name is Becky Shomimo. I am 34 years old, living in Atlanta, Georgia. And I had a baby girl um, on October 1st, 2020. So I was pregnant for pretty much the whole pandemic. Um, you know, I was a couple months pregnant when everything shut down. My journey really starts there because my pregnancy was pretty much unlike anything I could have imagined. I thought it was going to be, you know, going around town, people telling me congratulations because they could see my belly and, you know, trips with my mom to go pick out baby furniture or pick out maternity clothes, baby showers, um, you know, all that. And um, it wasn't that at all. It was uh, a lot of grief, a lot of fear, because we didn't know how COVID would affect um, pregnant people or, you know, the, the baby. Um, so I pretty much stayed on lockdown the whole time. And I'm a very social person. My husband and I love our quality time, but even, you know, that felt interrupted. We couldn't go on a baby moon. We couldn't go. We love going to the movies. We couldn't do anything like that um, because everything was a potential danger. So going from that type of grief and, and depression into my birthing story, um, you know, it's just all compounded, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm normally a very social, very active person. That was another thing that was a, a big trigger for me during my pregnancy. I thought I was going to be that pregnant woman at the gym who's still, you know, lifting weights safely, of course, but, you know, preparing to be, uh, you know, you have to physically prepare for labor the same way you have to, you know, mentally and emotionally prepare, but, I was never motivated to work out at home. Um, and so it just, it just all, you know, stacked on top of each other. So I, uh, at 39 weeks pregnant, I woke up and, uh, normally I could feel my daughter kick pretty strongly and I just couldn't, I could feel some faint kicks here and there, but nothing as strong as I'm used to. So I, I waited throughout the day. I didn't want to immediately jump to conclusions, but by the afternoon, you can even do things to kind of jump started. I drank a little pineapple juice because they'll react to uh, very sweet things. That didn't really seem to do anything. So I drove all the way to my OBGYN, which is not close, <laughs> but I wanted to check. Um, and so her heartbeat was good. But she wasn't, she still wasn't moving very much. So my OBGYN said, look, you're 39 weeks pregnant. Let's just induce. Let's just do this thing. Just go, I'll tell the, call the hospital, tell them you're on your way. You're going to have a baby. I was like, okay. Um, yet another thing I wasn't prepared for. I, you know, you just, there's so many things about 
pregnancy, labor, delivery, early motherhood that you think is, is just meant to be one way. And it's just never like that. It's never like that. I just assumed it was going to be one of these things where I was, you know, just walking around the house and all of a sudden start to feel a contraction and then know like, Oh, this baby's coming time to start the car and get going. Um, and, and I didn't even really know induction was a thing, which is when they use, um, certain, uh, chemicals and I shouldn't say chemicals. That's not great, but they use certain, um, medical intervention to speed up and, and start the labor process. So I went to the hospital. Um, I, the induction took almost two days. So already I'm in the hospital strapped to a fetal monitor to check on, because you have to continuously check on the baby's heartbeat and vitals to make sure that if there is a sudden change, they know that they have to change their protocol and either rush you into a C-section or that kind of a thing. So I'm 39 weeks pregnant, which is uncomfortable enough as it is. I'm strapped to a fetal monitor, so I'm constantly, I have to drag it everywhere with me. If I have to go to the restroom, drag the fetal monitor with you. If I have to, you know, that kind of, if I, if I want to get up and, and bounce on my little exercise ball, you got to have the fetal monitor with you. Couldn't really walk around because it's COVID, so you can't leave the room. Um, you know, my husband's asleep on this tiny bench, you know, feeding that, that kind of serves as a, as a bed. So it was a really long two days. Um, and then on Thursday, October 1st, they broke my water at 11 a.m. And my daughter was born at 3 p.m. So I was lucky. I was only in active labor for four hours. It was amazing. She was amazing. My husband was amazing. She, when she came out, she didn't cry, actually, which is normally not a good thing because that can mean that there's fluid in their lungs um, and so they did all of the things you do to, to make sure that that's not the case. So they made sure that that, that she was okay and she still didn't cry. And they said, we've never seen this before. <laughs> I said, what does it mean? They're like, oh, you just have a chill baby. I said, all right, let's do it. <laughs> so, um, it was a vaginal delivery, which normally means you're out of the hospital in 48 hours. So yet again, that was something I had just mentally prepared for. Okay. Had my baby on a Thursday. We'll probably be home on Saturday. Everything will be great. Well, our baby got jaundice, which is very normal, but not something I had ever heard of. Like, I mean, I've heard of, of the medical term jaundice. Not something that I knew that was a common occurrence in babies after they're born and something that they monitor at the hospital, you know, before they can be discharged. I'm having a tough time with sleep, with breastfeeding. I I'd always heard the rumor. I shouldn't even say it's a rumor. I'd always heard the story of you just got your baby to go to sleep. And then a nurse just like barrels in and, and needs to take the baby's vitals or something. And you're, and you're begging them, please, please come back to us. And they can't, they've, they've got their marching orders. They got to do what they have to do. They have to weigh the baby. They have to take the baby's temperature, check the baby's heartbeat. And this kind of thing happened to me at like three in the morning. 
Um, it's just the hospital, a, a, a traditional hospital birth, and then the aftercare is very hectic. It's not relaxing at all. <laughs> um, you have people busting in at all hours. You don't know which way is up because you're so tired. It was a lot. So they told us she was jaundiced and she had to be, she had to stay. We all had to stay, obviously. They weren't going to just charge me and not her. So, you know, even though they were telling me it's totally normal, it's going to be fine. And she even on the, they'll even show you on the scale. Oh, the normal level, let's just say, for, for lack of a better way to, to say it, oh, normal level is 90 and she's at 85, right? So it, she wasn't even that far off, but it's still under under the minimum amount. So here I am, sleep-deprived, new mom. I have no idea what, what to do. And it is midnight. And... As they are hooking my child up to a blue light machine in our uh, hospital room, the head nurse is telling me, okay, so we're going to discharge you, which means, you know, we're not, your, your care, your, since, since you're, your, you know, second degree, I, I had a second degree vaginal tear. They're like, your tear's fine. Your vitals are good, um, so we're going to discharge you, but obviously we're, we're keeping, uh, you're going to stay, but we will discharge you from giving you care, but we will keep, obviously we have to keep the baby until she gets her, her levels back up. So just sign this and, and, and that's it. So I, I, I was very confused. I was confused. I was tired. I didn't know what it meant for me to be discharged, but still be in the hospital, but have my baby there, right? Like, does that mean they're not going to bring us food, but we're still sitting here? It, it, it just did not know what it meant. And I didn't really have my wits enough about me to ask, to ask specifically, like, wait, what does this mean? So I signed the paper and I basically had a panic attack after that. Um, I started shaking I was nauseated. Um, I started sweating. And they were like, whoa, okay. Um, so we won't discharge you. We got to keep an eye on whatever this is. So, okay. Okay, you can stay. And you got to talk to the hospital's psychiatrist before you go. I was like, okay. So that was... Again, Saturday at midnight. So Sunday rolls around. The the six hours of like blue light treatment that my daughter was on uh, worked perfectly. You know, her numbers were back up where they needed to be. She didn't need any more treatment. So now she was the one that was good to go. But then because it was Sunday, the psychiatrist wasn't there. So I had to stay an extra day just. So I could wait until the psychiatrist was actually, you know, in the building. And I'm just like, okay, great. And meanwhile, this, this was a, as I was 
recalling this time in preparation for this podcast, I remembered that a lot of the nurses I spoke with said, this can't be postpartum depression. It's too soon. Postpartum depression doesn't hit until two weeks after or three weeks after. And it just felt like, I don't, you know, it felt very invalidating because here I am telling them, I'm telling you, I, I'm not sleeping. I'm, I'm feeling, um, you know, I don't want to be around my baby because I just, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to do the wrong thing and that I'm not going to know what to do. And I remember that's when this really specific thought came to me. They talk a lot about SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And they speak a lot about SIDS as it relates to not putting your baby on their stomach to sleep because they could suffocate. And again, people think that's like the only way SIDS happens. But sometimes, I mean, there's a reason why S is for sudden. There are plenty of times when SIDS happens and you just, you have no control over it. It just, it happens. Baby's oxygen level drops in a certain way. Heartbeat gets affected and you just, you just don't know. But it's not like you're expected to stand over your baby 24-7 and make sure they're breathing, right? So that was the first time I thought, okay, okay, if she just stops breathing, because that can happen, that's fine, because then it won't be hard anymore, and it won't be my fault. It won't be because I accidentally fell asleep in bed with her, and she suffocated, or I put her on her stomach. It, it wouldn't be my fault, and then I wouldn't feel this way anymore. I wouldn't feel so lost, and I wouldn't feel like a failure. And of course, you think that, and you feel like a monster. It just, it compound, again, this, this compounding set of feelings. Because then you talk isolation because of the pandemic, I can't get up and do laps around the, you know, the, the postpartum unit or anything like that to get my own strength up just to have a minute outside of the tiny windowless room that I'm in because it's COVID. So I talked to the psychiatrist on Monday and she said, uh, okay, you're fine. Just like, Go see a psychiatrist in a few weeks to get your meds looked at. I'm going to send you some pamphlets, which really pissed me off because I was like, that's why I had to stay here an extra day and a half. Mm -hmm. So you could just give me some pamphlets and tell me to go see a psychiatrist. Like, okay, great. So Monday morning, they're going to discharge me, but they have to take your vitals before you leave. So vitals include your heart rate, your, your blood oxygen level, 
and your uh, blood pressure. Um, so heart rate's fine. Uh, 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 blood oxygen level, fine. Well, then I start registering a high blood pressure, what they call, what they consider emergent. So that's like 145, that the top number being 145 or higher. And the bottom number, I think, is about 100 and higher is what they consider emergent. Emergent being emergency level blood pressure. And so I was registering in the 150s, then they'd wait 15 minutes, take it again, then it went up to the 160s. I think it got as high as 170s while they were, and, and I'm sitting here like, it's just it's just because I want to get out of here, that's all. It's just because I want to get out of here. And they're like, that's not what that le- that high of a blood pressure means. That's, that's not just like jitters of you wanting to get out of the hospital. So we're sitting there, we're sitting there, we're sitting there. Now we've already almost been here a week because if you remember we checked in tuesday afternoon to be induced so it's now almost been a week um i can't remember at this point if my husband had gone home to get fresh clothes or to even shower because again we thought we were just gonna be there for two days and then we'd have a baby and in 48 hours we're out then they come tell me that they think i have postpartum preeclampsia so preeclampsia is a condition that um, pregnant people will get while they are pregnant that their blood pressure will shoot up. And typically what solves regular preeclampsia is having the baby. You have preeclampsia, you have the baby, blood pressure goes down. It's a lot less common to have postpartum preeclampsia, so having high blood pressure after you have the baby, And it's not a simple, there's not a simple fix because you've had the baby. So there's, there's not some button they can push and then they say, oh, okay, your, your blood pressure is back to normal. I try, my husband's a lot better at this than I am. And I understand why, because these things were happening to him more peripherally than they were happening directly to me. He's like, it's, it's. And it's helpful for him to, when, when we do retell the story, it is helpful for him to add this part because it is so easy for me to forget. You know, high blood pressure, there's a reason why they call it the silent killer. It's not necessarily something you can feel as it's getting, as it's worsening. But then once it gets that bad, most of the time it's already too late. You think you have a headache, you're just like, oh, whatever, I'll take some Tylenol, or I'll drink some water, or whatever. But by then, you don't realize that you're close to having a stroke and dying. They were like, this happens. Mothers go home, they get a headache, they assume that they, they either ignore it because they're in the whirlwind of early motherhood as it is, or they think, oh, it's just because, again, I haven't slept very much, I haven't eaten very much, I haven't had a lot of water, what have you, what have you, I'm stressed, it's just a headache, until it's not just a headache. So had we not stayed that extra time, as as pissed as I was that we had to stay that extra time just to get some pamphlets thrown at me, it probably saved my life in, in one way or another. They then hooked me up to a magnesium IV. 
So the magnesium IV was probably the worst 24 hours possibly of my life. Definitely of that whole hospital stay because first of all, (laughs) I'm not good with IVs in general. I guess my veins are what they are. So, I mean, I walked out of the hospital looking like a heroin addict because I had bruises all over my arms from, from people trying to give me IVs. So first of all, you have an IV stuck to you for 24 hours. So yet another thing, I got to go to the bathroom. I got to drag this IV with me. But the magnesium basically makes you feel like you're drunk and, and hot for 24 hours to the point where I couldn't be alone in the room with my baby while I was on the magnesium because I, I, because the human body becomes that affected by it. So my, so, so if my baby was there, my husband had to be there. And so we haven't even, and it's so crazy. At this point too, I'm trying to get sleep because I can't sleep. So we're sending our baby to the nursery. She's eating more and more formula and less and less breast milk. So I'm feeling guilty about that, feeling guilty about how far away she is, you know, all the while still having this loop played where like, oh, well, she's going to the nursery? Well, I mean, if she just stops breathing while she's with them, then it's definitely not my fault. And this can all go away. I mean, those intrusive thoughts are still playing in my mind on top of guilt, on top of exhaustion, on top of high blood pressure, on top of anxiety. You know, it's, it stacks, it all stacks. On top of isolation, uh, still in this tiny windowless room. On top of, of uh, uh, feeling like I'm disappointing my husband because he has to live in this tiny windowless room with me. You know, the, the magnesium, I don't even know if the magnesium ever really helped because even after the magnesium, we were still in the hospital for another five days because they just couldn't find the right combination of medication that would keep my blood pressure down. It would always, it would skyrocket. They'd have to give me something in my IV that would make it crash in the basement. Um, and then they'd figure something to level it off, but then overnight it would shoot back up again. So they couldn't find this the, the right combination that would keep it stable enough that they would feel comfortable discharging me. All, all the while, this 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 postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety is creeping in, and it's like I don't even have time to to process that. Because I'm so, I'm like sitting here thinking, okay, if I just take some deep breaths, whatever, then I'll lower my blood pressure and we can get out of here. So it's not even like I had permission to, to, to investigate these feelings I was having about, you know, postpartum and everything. So long story long, we are finally discharged. I think all in all, we were in the hospital 10 or 11 days from the day we were induced to the day we went home. And it's funny because obviously all I wanted was to get 
out of the hospital. And then finally we're getting out and I'm like, Oh God, we have to do this on our own now. I, I can't just send her to a nursery. This is on us now. So we go home and, you know, meanwhile, excuse me, my mother was planning on coming to stay with us after the, the baby was born. Of course, this is pre-vaccine. So my mom, you know, we asked her from, from the day she was born, we asked her to quarantine, like lockdown quarantine. Like she had everything delivered, even her groceries. She like did not leave the house. And we told her she couldn't fly. You know, I basically had to hang on a couple of days, a couple of days, I think, before my mom would get there. Um, thankfully, it was just an eight-hour drive from where she lives. So it wasn't, um, it's not like, oh, she's, she lives all the way on the other side of the world. She's got to take three days, blah, blah, blah. But I was struggling. I wasn't sleeping. You know, feeding her was becoming more and more of a challenge because she would breastfeed for so long but still be hungry, so we'd have to supplement with formula. And you are so indoctrinated about breast is best that to to do anything otherwise makes you a monster. You're not going to have this bond with your baby. Your baby's not going to develop certain antibodies and, and, and immune whatevers. Um, you know, this is the way you should do it. And if it's too hard, it's too bad. You got to just do it. And so that, okay, there you go. That loop is running through my head. So I'm, my husband's fast asleep next to me, you know, at like two in the morning or whatever. And I'm sitting up breastfeeding her, but she's still crying. She's not, you know, another thing they don't really tell you is that newborns uh, love sleeping on people. You know, they're, they're like, okay, it's fine. Newborns, they're pretty boring for the first couple weeks. They just wake up to, to eat. And so you feed them, you burp them, change their diaper, they go right back to sleep. Yeah, but they don't tell you that for the most part, they go right back to sleep on somebody. And that somebody can't also be sleeping. And that, and that, is, that is a lot because of having to put the baby on their back by best practices. Um, because that's the least comfortable way for a baby to sleep. All things they they, they kind of don't tell you. They care so much about your health and wellness and well-being when you're pregnant because you are a vessel for this beautiful life. When that baby's born, they don't tell you how to care for yourself. All they prep you to do is care for the baby. You got to know infant CPR. You got to know how to bathe the baby. You got to know how to feed the baby. You got to know how to burp the baby. You got to know how to change the baby. All very important stuff. I'm not discounting that. But they, I mean, the most they say is uh, drink lots of water and sleep when the baby sleeps. First of all, 
I got some choice words for whoever came up with sleep when the baby sleeps. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because when the baby sleeps, that's your uninterrupted time to eat, to shower, to do whatever stuff around your house needs to be done, clean, laundry, cooking, whatever. There is no sleep when the baby sleeps in, in, in traditional kind of like the way in, in America that we, that the expectations we put on new moms, new parents, I should say. It's not a sleep when the baby sleeps. It's when the baby sleeps, that's when you can get all the other stuff done. Unless you're lucky enough to live in any other civilized country in this world where absolutely you can sleep when the baby sleeps if you're the birth parent because your whole family is running around cooking and cleaning and, you know, no, that's not how it works here. You got to get to getting because you got three weeks until you got to go back to work. So, um, I mean, I was just getting exponentially worse. Um, and while I was on an antidepressant at the time, it clearly was not the right one. Yeah, I was fading. I was barely eating, not sleeping, because I would lay down and put my head on the pillow and either have intrusive thoughts about about bad things that could happen to my baby or these, you know, these fears of like, what if I never really wanted kids and I just thought I did because that's what everybody, you're just what you're just supposed to want. So I wasn't meant to be with my husband and he should be with someone who wants kids and my daughter should be with someone who wants to be her mom. And so that cycle was just running, running, running through my head. And again, it, it's, it's the name of the game is compounding because it's compounding on top of isolation, fear, depression, politics. If you want to believe that she was born in October. So we are like deep into uh, uh, 2020 election stuff. So that's all anybody's talking about on social media. Is, is the election and COVID and, um, and everything like that. Sleep deprivation, dehydration, you know, a, a, a course of medication that is not helping or not doing enough to help. Finally, I, I got up one morning and I just felt awful. And I don't mean feel awful like the way you feel awful when you have the flu or a stomach bug. I mean, I just felt drained and just depleted, like a real shell of myself. And I thought, okay, I guess the only way not to feel like this anymore is not to be here anymore. And previously the 
quote, not be here anymore was running away. Running away, starting a new life, uh, 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 so things could be easy again. That was, that was the not, not be here anymore. But today, that day, I should say, the not be here anymore was suicide. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't like at that point I was like, okay, this is my plan. I'm going to write this note. It, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't that thought out, which, and I say that because those are questions I will have to answer over and over and over again from the healthcare professional once that, that whole thing started. But I knew it was a problem because up to that point, it had never, again, it had only just meant I want to run away. It wasn't, I just don't want to be alive anymore. So at this point, I should, I should say, I think before I left the hospital, uh, a dear friend of mine introduced me to a group of mothers that she is friends with. She herself is also a mother. And she's like, gals, we got to help this. We got to help this girl out. She's, she's struggling and she needs to know, you know, she needs to know she's not alone. She needs support. And these are women I still have never met face to face. And they have helped save my life. You know, my husband, my family, and these women have helped save my life. Because when I told them about the, you know, the feelings I had in the hospital about like, oh, if she just stopped breathing, it would be okay. I think two thirds of them were like, oh, yep, that happened to me too. I felt the exact same way. And when I talked to other women, other people, um, who are thinking about having kids, um, the best piece of advice I have for them, besides any practical advice they want down the road, they can find any piece of practical advice they, they want, you know, life hacks about diapering your kids and whatnot. But like when you really want advice about what will help, I say find yourself a group of people who you can be unflinchingly vulnerable with that you can contact hopefully at any time, day or night. I was actually lucky enough that a couple of these women were on the West Coast so when I was up with her at my, you know, for my 3 a.m. shift, sometimes some of these women would be up because they're a few hours behind. I said, find yourself a group of people. The, the dark and twisty, as I call it, the, the, the dark and twisty is bad enough, but then judging yourself for the dark and twisty just makes things worse. Mm-hmm. So if you find a group of people you can be dark and twisty with, who will then be like either girl same or be like, 
I understand why you'd feel that way and not judge you. It's invaluable. So if in my ramblings today, dear listeners, you can take anything away from what I'm saying, um, find yourself a group of people and this doesn't even have to be specific to motherhood. Find yourself a group of people you can be vulnerable with. It will save your life. So I, I, I told the moms how I felt and they were like, you got to go to the ER. You got to go to the ER. You got to go to an inpatient psychiatric facility because in the meantime, I had called an outpatient psychiatric facility connected to the hospital where I was at. And, um, they said, yeah, okay, we can take you for uh, an intake appointment, which I don't even remember if that, if an intake appointment's even with the doctor or if it's just with, you know, some front office intern or whatever. Mm-hmm. In three weeks. And I was like, no, that, that's it? Like, three weeks? So this whole ordeal has also opened my eyes to the wild gaps we have in our healthcare system, especially as it relates to women, motherhood, and mental health. Because they just, like I said before, they tell you everything, they t- tell you to take all the classes about CPR, diapering, feeding, all very important but they just don't tell you how to take care of yourself. They don't tell you what it's going to feel like when your hormones, which are at an all-time high when you're pregnant, take a nosedive once the baby's out and how that's going to affect your body and how that's going to affect your brain. They don't tell you any of that. I'm sorry. They didn't tell me any of that. This is all this is all specific to me. I'm sure there are people out there who were well prepared. Bless you. I was not one of those people. So um I go to the ER and I get checked into an inpatient psychiatric facility. Um I was there for six days with a bunch of people who were former drug addicts, former alcoholics, bipolar people. You know, I went there thinking that I was going to find these coping mechanisms, especially because I was away from my family for so long. I mean, six days in the life of my daughter at that point was like a third of her life. At that point. And I felt awful. But that type of treatment was honestly for someone in a dis- having that had different mental needs than, than I did, if that makes sense. Like the main thing I got out of it was getting it was being able to see a psychiatrist immediately. So in the facility, you see a psychiatrist every morning. They they prescribe you medic they prescribe you medication. You take the meds. The next day, they say, "How did that work? 
Do we need to add anything, subtract anything, tweak anything, whatever? That was really the only, and, and to have to, to have to go to a, and when I say inpatient psychiatric facility, that's no cell phones, very little contact with the outside world, um, you know, prescribed wake times, sleep times, meal times, you know, it, it's, it's serious. Um, so, you know, I, I, I come home and of course, antidepressants are not a, are not a light switch. I knew it was going to take four to six weeks even. So thankfully my mom was still there so she could help my husband while I wasn't there. But, you know, then, then we're talking about this tremendous amount of guilt that is still running through my head. Oh, my husband, like I've let my husband down. He should be with a better woman. He should, you know. And, uh, so I was able to find, uh, a therapist who specializes in postpartum depression. So I was able to start working with her. A couple months later, I found a pelvic floor specialist because there's a lot, yet another thing they don't tell you, there's a lot of rehab involved with the physical trauma of birth. None of it covered by insurance, by the way. My therapist was not covered by insurance, both the physical therapist and the, the psychotherapist. Neither of them covered, so I'm lucky enough that my husband makes enough money and I was on unemployment at that point because I was laid off when I was seven and a half months pregnant, so I got severance from my last job. Um, but yeah, I, I already this, this year, I've probably spent close to $5,000 on my medical care. That's just part of our high deductible plan. Again, you just lose so much faith in the health insurance industry. Uh, when you have a kid, you know, I went, I went, I definitely went through uh, a, a hard time when my mom finally left. It's not like she was going to live with us. Um, but, you know, that third set of hands was such a gift. I'd be sitting there holding her because she was asleep on me, and my mom could be force-feeding me scrambled eggs because I hadn't eaten in hours. And so as I get more and more clarity, thanks to sleeping more, help from my husband and my mom, you know, getting on track with a better course of medication, talking to my therapist. I, you know, I decided like, I'm, I've got to be honest with people about how this has all affected me. Because when I, in the limited research I did about postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, they said something like one out of seven women. That's bull. One out of seven women was either so bad that you had to flag them as postpartum depression or one out of seven felt comfortable enough saying that she needed help. That number is way higher 
I mean, even just the, the seven, like the seven women that's in my group of moms that we talked to, I think like 65 or 70% of them were like, oh yeah, I was a mess. I realize that's a small sliver, but, and we're all white women. That's nothing to say of the lack of resources and even just the societal implications of a woman of color saying, I need help. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my husband is African-American. His sister has four kids. Uh, his mother was basically a single mom for both he and his, his sister. And I remember feeling like, oh, they must think I'm so weak. This little white girl who's sad, can't take care of her family. And I say that because black women don't, black women aren't allowed to, to say they need help. They're not allowed to say they're, they're vulnerable. They're not allowed to say they can't do something because they're already up against so much that they've had to develop this, this armor around themselves. So kind of add again, so much of what I will continue to work on for the rest of my life is letting go of what other people think about me. It, I, it, that's going to be ongoing for the rest of my life. Um, it's, I'm not just going to wake up one day and be able to wipe my hands of it. That's not how that goes. Um, but, um, so in terms of my social media presence, of course I do nothing but post pictures of my beautiful daughter, but I also try to be pretty real with people. I was very open and honest about my trip to the um, inpatient psychiatric facility, the fact that I was not doing well. Um, Anytime certain things come up, like I remember the first time I took my daughter out of the house to just go to the botanical gardens with a friend of mine who also has a, a, a baby and freaking out the night before because I had never taken her out anywhere because of the pandemic and oh man what if she misses nap time what if she doesn't eat what if this throws her off her schedule blah 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 and I posted about her I said look it'd be easy enough for me to post these beautiful pictures of my daughter at the garden and be like everything's great and it was great it was great when we were there we had a great time but I just want you to know that behind these pictures what you don't see is me worrying about this, me worrying about that, and da 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 Because social media can be really deceptive. So deceptive. And so I try as much as I can uh, to show good, bad, and ugly um, on social media. And just in general, just like, I don't shy away from talking about my depression, I don't even, I think it was maybe two months ago, something like that. I was out with some friends and, um, well, no, it couldn't have been two months ago because this was after we were vaccinated. Anyway, my girlfriends were like, 
oh, you look great, your, your body's so great, which is another thing people feel like they have to say to people who've given birth. Um, and I was like, yeah. You know, when I'm depressed, I don't eat. So, of course I lost my baby weight or some of my baby weight quicker than normal. Because I was depressed and I wasn't eating. So, like, I thank him for the compliment, but I was like, don't put me on some pedestal of, like, this is what my body should look like after I have a baby. Because I was depressed. I wasn't eating. Yeah. That's why I lost the weight. Not because I was doing anything else. It's, it's, that's it. And that's one of those moments where I'm like, I think it's much more helpful to be real with this person and be like, this happened. This is why I look this way. Like, again, don't, don't like worship what's going on here. And even now I've, I've since gained weight, you know, cause I'm eating more, but I'm, I'm not able to be active the same way I was before because my husband and I are both caring for her at home while working. So there's not a ton of time to, to exercise and, and it's one of those things that I've kind of made peace with the idea that until she can more regularly go to daycare or preschool or whatever our lives are not our own you know um, but uh, I'm also going to use mommy brain as an excuse for why I lose my train of thought or can't remember something literally for the rest of my life. It's not something that just happens right after you give birth. <laughs> it happens forever. <laughs> um, oh, right. So I gained some weight and it just pisses me off that I go on Pinterest. Uh, I use Pinterest a lot to find recipes uh, for what to make for dinner. And I don't know if it's because my phone is listening to me or what, but like every other Pinterest ad is like flatten your tummy, do these exercises to get six pack ads, do use this smoothie to, to lose weight. And I just want to be like, just half off. Mm-hmm. Where are the, where are the Pinterest posts about loving your body at every size? Where are the Pinterest posts about find the right XYZ clothing for your shape? Where are those? Why can't I see those anymore? Mm-hmm. Why do you have to bombard me with uh, uh, you got to change this, you got to change that, you got to change this, you got to change that, don't forget about this, this is too big, this is too small, you're not doing this right, like Ugh. It's just disrespectful is what it is. So that's that's kind of my new soapbox that I'm standing on now that now that I'm feeling more more in control um of my emotions, you know, uh it's hard because 
things still change at the drop of a hat. As much as, as psyched as I am that my baby's on a schedule now, I'm about to be solo parenting two, two days a week. It's terrifying. Friggin' terrifying. Uh, I've been used to having my husband home all the time. That's like the one silver lining of this entire pandemic is that my husband had been home, has been home working every day. And so he can have a closer relationship with our daughter and he can help me out. Um, so yeah, definitely freaking out about it. So I'm not here to tell you that my depression is gone, but it's more manageable. Um, things seem more hopeful. Um, also, getting permission from my therapist to not like the baby stage was huge. There's an expectation that as soon as your baby comes out, the sun rises and sets with them and you never imagined the pure joy. No, not necessarily. For a while, your baby is this tiny, helpless lump that can't tell you what it wants. Uh, it's okay to not know what to do with that. Yeah. I'm here to tell you, if you don't like the baby phase, join the club. I didn't love it. Um, so, you know, yet another way. We just heap, heap these expectations on people. So things are, 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 are better, but, um, you know, I could not have done it without, I mean, there's just so many things that contribute to, um, even, I mean, I remember when we first discussed doing this podcast, I, I, I was, all about it, super gung-ho, yes, I want to tell my story. And then when I was thinking about what I would say to you, even before our first meeting where we were just getting to know each other, mm -hmm. I thought I was thinking back on the story, and it's like PTSD. It's not like PTSD. It is PTSD. I was thinking about what I would tell you. My heart started racing. I started crying. I, and I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this because it's just, just too hard. It's just too hard to have to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that place. Um, so it's, it's interesting that it has been several weeks since we last spoke. In some ways, that's a good thing because, you know, it's, it's given me a little more time for things to feel, you know, a little less raw. Um, you know, the PTSD is real. It's it's something I have, my, my therapist has previewed me and said, we're going to get there. She's like, we're, we're not talking about it yet because I think it's still too soon. But we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what happened in your, you know, labor and delivery uh, story. We're going to talk about it and we're going to get into it because um, I know there's a lot to unpack. Um, so yeah. Thank you for sharing that. 
Sure. I really, really appreciate your vulnerability. And um, I liked how you just like the unflinching vulnerability. I've never heard that. Like I've heard, you know, rigorous authenticity. I've heard um, just like vulnerability just in general. But unflinching vulnerability, I think, has this power behind it that really does perfectly describe how difficult and how powerful being vulnerable can be. And yeah. so I'm really thankful that you tapped into that for this episode because I agree hundred percent. The statistics are BS. <laughs> and, um, especially like you said, first of all, um, like the women who might not have felt comfortable speaking up. Like, I don't want to speak for my sisters, but I know my oldest sister in particular, when she had her first baby, she's pregnant now with her second, but when she had her first one, my nephew, after he was born, I did see this change in her that I didn't understand. And it, I like mm-hmm. it, it was hard to recognize what was going on. Um, right. And this was now three-ish years ago. I didn't even know what, I mean, I knew of postpartum depression, but I didn't know anything about it. And mm-hmm. um, I think, I mean, I don't know, this might be a jump because I am I would like to be a mom one day, but obviously I'm not right now. And um, I'm not a doctor or a analyst of any kind, but I wonder if um, pre-existing mental health um, issues or maybe diagnoses that that one may have has a play in postpartum depression as well as like miscarriages if you had any Mm -hmm. before having the baby because I know Mm -hmm. like with miscarriages everyone heals from them differently some Mm -hmm. don't heal at all Mm -hmm. um it's just it's a different how do you process something like that you know so then with having a healthy baby eventually if that happens for you what is your experience with miscarriages? Like, how does that play into your postpartum depression as well? Um, a lot of fear. I'm really grateful that you touched on the fear aspect because I do think, I mean, becoming a mother is a a miracle, something I can't understand how a human, how a human makes another human. Um, yep. it, it's wonderful. It's it's this incredible experience that it is possible for something like that to happen. Right. And I think mothers are held to on this, on this, this, what did you say? Pedestal of some kind where it's like, Oh, you're this magnificent creature who created a human life. And that's true. And not only are you creating a human life, but you're changing your life physically and emotionally, spiritually, just all of it is being affected. Right. And I agree that they don't, I mean, at least from what I've been taught um, and what I know, at least, they don't talk about how to take care of you. I mean, nope. of course, you should know how to take care of the baby. Like, of course, they teach you that. Mm-hmm. But I haven't heard anything about how to take care of yourself. And especially I remember being in high school, I want to, point on Pinterest because that soapbox that you're talking about I will gladly stand on that with you yeah <laughs> um, join me join me up there oh Pinterest is literally 
it has it has such good potential but it's also just the worst because like with body image and specifically with my eating disorder recovery that whole like thin spo bullshit that people post on there and because in high school I would look at a lot of like motherly stuff because I'm like oh I want to be a mom one day like it was it was my favorite thing to think about was just being a mom one day and Mm -hmm. um looking at all these cute matching outfits that families did and like these cute baby shower like and baby announcements and um moms you know wearing these leggings in a sports bra with their baby and like they Mm -hmm. look so fit and happy and i'm like like if that's what your life tend if that's what your body looks like eventually after having a baby cool that's where your body Mm -hmm. wants to be at because i don't think i mean people i can get in a whole tangent about bmi and how sure i think it stands for (laughs) bullshit men invented oh yeah (laughs) That's what BMI stands for. And, oh, you could uh, put a you could put a lot you could put a lot. Same thing with like the fact that you're you're medically cleared to have sex again six weeks after you have a baby. Okay, <laughs> all right, that's definitely bullshit. Men invented. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And um, and uh, it wasn't even until I was started my treatment process I learned about what a set point is, and that there's this thing called a set point where your body exists in a range of weight and it doesn't exist at one number. It'll just fluctuate between this number and this number because it's where it's like, it's where it likes to sit. And um, it's going to change throughout our lives, of course. Like you're not going to be in the same, like I'm not going to be in the same set point that I was in middle school now as a Mm -hmm. woman in her 20s, you know? And so, but like when your body because I actually, I agree with what you said, the physical trauma that your body goes through when having a baby. Um, yes, it's this experience that brings on a lot of emotions and it, and it can be this wonderful thing. And your body goes through so much. It's traumatic oh for it. And it needs that time to heal. Um, and rest is a huge part of the healing process and sleep. Your body does so much processing and healing and it does a lot of work while you're sleeping, obviously. And so like when you don't get that, that's a, that's another huge part of like early motherhood. Mm-hmm. You don't have that time. And so um, now I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> I totally get it. Uh, oh, gosh. I don't know. But I'm just going to swing it back around to Pinterest that like I see these I've for some reason – I've come across many transition videos of like a woman with her almost due baby, like her belly's pretty big and you can tell like she's getting to the end of her um, time span before having the baby and she's wearing these leggings and a sports bra and then all of a sudden it transitions to her holding the baby and she's like super thin and it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, got rid of my baby weight and stuff and I think, (sighs) I think it's, I feel like it's almost not only pushing aside what having a baby takes but I think it also kind of just treats the baby as like this accessory like Mm -hmm. oh look at me in these cute lululemon outfit with the baby on my hip like don't we look so cute and I just I hate that with every Mm -hmm. part of me (laughs) and I love seeing women post pictures with their baby in a bathing suit or in 
like it's mm-hmm. in a sports bra and they're like embracing my mommy curves or embracing this body that created a human life. Like I think the world forgets that we literally created another human to add to the population. Like yeah. it's it's a huge deal. And I think it should be treated as such um, before, during, and after. Like there's so much that is missed and like I said, and I agree with you, the statistics are bull. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm really grateful that I am able to sit down and talk with you at a point in my life where I'm I'm not even in a relationship, so I'm not even close to having a baby or even mm-hmm. wanting one right now. Um, but I'm so grateful that I'm able to talk with you and hear your story in the most vulnerable way possible because not only have you taught me things that I've never known about before, but I feel more encouraged and inspired to continue to dive into vulnerability in my life because it's already hard for me to do this with the podcast on my eating disorder Mm -hmm. and other things I struggle with. So, and depression as well. I think I can share that with you and the and intrusive thoughts, I very much struggle with those a lot. And um, But like being able to sit here and talk with you, I'm so grateful that you were open with me and that I can it's, receive that. It's my pleasure. And one thing I'll, I'll put out to, to, to you and to listeners is um, to not only feel comfortable being vulnerable, but also recognizing vulnerability when somebody else lets you in to their lives. Um, you know, a friend of mine, I'm trying, I'm trying now that, uh, we're vaccinated and my, my, we're trying to introduce my daughter to as many people as possible in a safe way mm-hmm. because for the first seven months of her life or so, she saw three people. She saw three people. Yeah. Not including, you know, excuse me, though, like four times she's been to the pediatrician, mm-hmm. right? So we've been trying to introduce her to our, our friends and family. Um, and so there are two friends of mine that I um, want to try to meet up with. And one of them said to me, uh, look, I'm a shell of a human right now with balancing three kids. He's between projects at work. And his wife works nights. So he's like, things are pretty rough for me right now. And I was like, I hear you. And I appreciate your vulnerability, your willingness to share with me that it's rough. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like we need to normalize vulnerability. And a way to do that, not only to model it, right? So model it by doing it yourself. But um, but recognize and appreciate vulnerability in others. Yeah. So any opportunity you have to do that, you know, hopefully there's going to be a ripple effect. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Um, sure. This was such a good conversation. Um, oh, thank you. I was really uh, um, excited. Uh, when I spoke with Christina about, um, cause I had just done her episode and, um, when she said, I have this friend, if 
I can ask if she's comfortable to talk on her postpartum depression, I was like, yes, <laughs> because, um, excuse me, honestly, it's ever since my sister, like I said, had her first baby that I've been really interested in what that is and just like mm -hmm. what that experience mm -hmm. is like. Um, so yeah, I'm very, I don't, I think it's anything but a coincidence that, um, Christina and I got in contact like that and then she introduced me to you. Um, definitely. Um, I do want to close off with, um, when you're in the midst of it and people tell you, you know, like you're going to get through it. Like it, this won't last forever and stuff like that. Um, people are encouraging you and you have that support around you. Hopefully. Um, how do you receive that? Even if you don't necessarily believe it. Honestly, you don't have a choice. Hmm. You don't have a choice. You have this baby now. Yeah. You need to care for this baby. It doesn't matter how hard it is. You got to do it. You just have to do it. Hmm. And if you have to set tiny goals for yourself, and every hour you're like, I kept this baby alive for another hour. Do it. But the difficulty of what you have to do is not going to make that thing you have to do go away. So when people are like, it gets better, it gets better, it gets better. First of all, they were right. <laughs> um, but also like, you just got to do it. You just have to do it. You, you don't. You don't have a choice. Yeah. I mean, you. You do. Um. I, I get that there are times when things just seem absolutely impossible. That to me is a small percentage, and has a lot more outliers to it. When you're just like, I really can't do this anymore, and I gotta put this baby up for adoption, whatever, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. That's not really what I'm talking about. Um, even when things are hard, you still gotta do it. So just ask, another thing to normalize, normalize asking for help. Yeah. Um, so do it when you can, ask for help when you can, and otherwise, do it because there's, there's just no other choice yeah you gotta do it i like that of um uh set many goals like i i even do that in my recovery like oh mm -hmm. i i ate this snack awesome mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i know that i have all these other uh meals and snacks to eat and i for the rest of the day but i just did this one and that's good enough right now mm -hmm. um and I know that's a stretch to compare that to like with a baby, but I think that no. <laughs> that's, then that's another thing I have as much as I can try to stop apologizing for stuff like that. Like that's your, I'm not here to, to, to like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm not here to prioritize my experience over yours. That's, that's just, that's another thing 
I mean, I mean, women, we, we apologize for so much stuff we don't have to apologize for. Yeah. And I know that when you, when you talk about your own experience, you're not doing it as a way. I know why you're doing it because you're speaking to your experience. You're not doing it to undermine what I'm talking about or, or whatever. So, you know, you don't have to apologize. I get it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> if my dietitian or therapist listens to this episode, I'm going to go in one day and they're going to be like, come on. <laughs> because we, uh, uh, just because of a lot of things I've experienced in life, I do constantly feel I need have, I have to apologize because I might have done something wrong. Um, and we have this uh, sorry thing where it's like if you say sorry uh, at treatment too much, you have to like, do something like, oh, all right, here's these M&Ms, eat them. Right. <laughs> um, so, because I mean, I mean, I agree, women in general, uh, we've, we feel this need to apologize more than we even need to. And when you mm -hmm. combine other mental health issues on top of it, I really, I really struggle with that. So thank you. Oh, for, yeah. Thank I you for you. fact checking that with me. Um, but yes, uh, definitely the small successes. I mean, my therapist says that all the time, celebrate the small successes because you can say small, but they might be really big to you in the moment. And oh, yeah. like you said, I kept this baby alive for another hour. Go me. Yeah. Like go me. Yeah. Um, I even have this list that I do, excuse me, every morning um, that's titled things I'm capable of doing. And it's like, yep. it's open the blinds, brush my teeth, wash my face, Mm -hmm. change my clothes like it's the simple things that everyone does in the morning or typically mm -hmm. does but I feel like I can't do them so I have to make a list to be like okay I checked all these things off and these are successes mm -hmm. um, and I think honestly um, as far as mental health goes in general and my experience with it when becoming a mother one day hopefully um I already do think about that ahead of time of what my mental health is going to look like after having my hopeful, hopefully baby. And, um, and I do think that I'm going to have to go back to a lot of these skills that I've developed, like oh, yeah. checklists and taking it hour by hour, just because I think mental health or not, whether you struggle with it or not, it's... A good thing to do anyway because it's a change in your life and it's another human you're adding to your household and mm -hmm. things are going to be hard regardless um so yeah definitely um and i also just want to touch up um before we close off that i appreciate you um adding in like like you said uh the dark and twisty <laughs> but also um adding in like it's dark and twisty and I'm so grateful to have my daughter and like, I'm so grateful to have this baby. Um, oh, yeah. cause I think it's easy for people and I include myself in this to be like, it's one or the other, like it's black mm -hmm. and white. Um, but both can exist. And, um, I'm really grateful that you touched on the fact that you have allowed both to exist and that both still exist for you. Um, that it's still hard and you're still like, ah, oh, yay, my baby. <laughs> So. Oh, yeah. It's still hard because things are going to, the, the minute, the universe knows that the minute you get too comfortable, <laughs> it's going to do something to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So, and just know, um, oh, I can't believe I forgot. 
my therapist would say to me, yes, this is hard, and you can do hard things. Yeah. You know, it's so simple, but it's very meaningful. Yes, this is hard, the acknowledgement portion, and you can do hard things, the encouragement portion. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good, I think that's a good uh, quote to leave our listeners with. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, Listeners, I know it's hard and you can do hard things. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much yeah. for doing this and taking the time and being so open. It means a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> Let me...